Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Genesis chapter 49. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Jacob's last words are part prophecy and part blessing. Derek Kidner refers to them as potent as well as informative. So he is seeing the future, but there's also a sense in which he is shaping the future by the words that he speaks. Verse 2. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. The word translated there as unstable is the same word used in Judges 9.4 to describe an unruly mob. So Jacob is saying that Reuben is a man of uncontrolled passions, and as a result of his rash and unruly actions, he has lost the position and honor that was his birthright. We talked about that in the last episode. Reuben should have been the head of the tribes of Israel, but he was not that honor was transferred to Ephraim. Now, since these stories are preserved and transmitted as archetypal stories, that is to say, stories that portray for us the general picture and pattern of faith, we want to stop and think about this. It it is worth noting that Reuben is not cast out of the family because of his actions, but he does lose honors and rewards that could have been his. And this reminds me of what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3, 13 to 15. He's talking about a day of judgment for believers when our work and conduct will be evaluated. And he says, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So Paul talks there about people who are still saved, but who have squandered their opportunities and forfeited their rewards and who will enter heaven like a naked man escaping from a fire. And that sounds like Reuben here, doesn't it? He's not being kicked out of the family. He's not being denied a share in the promised land, but he has forfeited reward and honor. Hear that. While it is true that a real believer cannot lose his or her salvation, it is equally true that through unruly, undisciplined, unwise behavior, a real believer can forfeit honor, dignity, and reward. We see that in the Old Testament and in the New. Verse 5 goes on to say, Simeon and Levi are brothers, Weapons of violence are their swords. Uh, 
Let my soul come not into their counsel, O my glory. Be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. This oracle refers back to the massacre of the Shechemites in Genesis 34. You remember that story. Dinah, their sister, had been raped by the young prince of Shechem, and the brothers tricked the men of the city into undergoing ritual circumcision. And while they were recovering, Simeon and Levi went in and struck them down to a man. They acted out of rage and spite. Jacob talks about how they hamstrung the oxen. Well, that was obviously not necessary. The oxen were not to blame for the violence done to their sister. This is uncontrolled spite and malice. And while the text made no specific comment on it back in Genesis 34, here we note that the judge of all things has seen and observed and rendered judgment. The judgment is that both Simeon and Levi shall be scattered among their brethren. Now, it is interesting to note how that happened. The tribe of Simeon appears to have simply disintegrated. They intermarried and more or less dissolved into the other tribes, mostly in Judah, but also some in the north. But Levi, through an act of loyalty and virtue in Exodus, won for himself an honorable dispersion. The tribe of Levi was scattered through their brethren with a ministry, a calling, and a blessing. And this reminds us that while God is sovereign, people are responsible agents. And we can choose to turn our punishments into opportunities. We can choose to glorify God in our afflictions and turn our chastisements into a calling. Levi did that, and so can we. Verse 8 goes on to say, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion. And as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Now, this is probably the most important paragraph in the chapter, but it is not without some difficulty with respect to translation. In fact, this whole chapter is hard to translate. Part of that is because it's written as poetry. We mentioned way back in the episodes dealing with chapter 1 and 2 that those passages are not written as poetry, despite that sometimes people say that they are. But Hebrew scholars know better. In fact, the JPS Torah commentary says about this chapter, chapter 49, that this document, specifically verses 1 to 27, is the first sustained piece of Hebrew poetry in the Torah. So, as we said, Hebrew scholars do not consider chapter 1 and 2, to be poetry. But they do clearly understand this chapter, chapter 49, as poetry. And poetry is harder to translate into English. So there are problems here. Verses 8 and 9 are fairly straightforward. Jacob is predicting the preeminence 
and headship of Judah. Reuben has been disqualified. Simeon and Levi, the next oldest, have also been disqualified. Therefore, headship will rest on Judah. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your father's sons shall bow down for you. Jacob is predicting that Judah will rule over the other tribes. And of course, eventually that did happen. Judah grew during the wilderness wanderings and became the most powerful tribe. And Judah produced the Davidic line of kings. So that seems to be what verses 8 and 9 are predicting. However, verse 10 is not so clear cut. The first part seems reasonably easy to understand. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Scholars debate exactly what that means and what the scepter shall be between his feet. Some see that as a poetic description of a king seated on his throne with his scepter resting on the ground between his feet. Others understand it as a poetic euphemism referring to the king's sexual parts and therefore referring to his issue or line, meaning that Judah will not fail to produce a male king through the line. Either way, The prediction is that kings will be produced through Judah and rule will be exercised by Judah. And then we get to the part that is very confusing and heatedly debated. About halfway through verse 10 in the ESV, you have the word until, as in until tribute comes. Some translations render that so that, as in so that something comes. It is the Hebrew ad ki, and it is used to express the leading up to a climactic passage. It is a literary indicator. The JPS Torah commentary says, It seems to mean that Judah will exercise hegemony over the tribes for a period of time leading up to some climactic event. What exactly that climactic event will be is debated. Again, the problem is that the words are very hard to translate. The next Hebrew words in the verse are Yavo Shiloh. And to be perfectly honest with you, we have no idea what that means. Again, the JPS Torah commentary says the Hebrew Yavo Shiloh is wholly obscure. Neither the subject of the verb nor the meaning of Shiloh is clear. We don't know. And that's why you get a variety of translations. The ESV has it. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. The old King James Version just leaves the word Shiloh untranslated. It says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come. And unto him shall the gathering of the people be. And that may, in fact, be the better translation. The word Shiloh seems to have been understood as a sort of code word for Messiah by the early Jews. There are Qumram texts and Targums that understand it that way. But most importantly of all, that seems to be how Ezekiel understood it. In Ezekiel 21, verses 26 to 27, he says, Remove the turban, take off the crown. Things shall not remain as they are. Exalt that which is low and bring low that which is exalted. A ruin, 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 I will make it. This also shall not be until he comes. The one to whom judgment belongs, I will give it to him. 
So Ezekiel prophesies that the, that the rule of Judah will be overthrown, that it will come to ruin until the one comes to whom it properly belongs. And he makes that prophecy by referring to Genesis 49.10. Let me read to you what the Tyndale Old Testament commentary on Ezekiel 21 says about that passage. It says, so Ezekiel spells out the overthrow of the kingly line, and he concludes with a cryptic reference back to Genesis 49.10, with its distant prospect of the one who had always been expected and to whom the right of kingship genuinely belonged. When he eventually appears, the crown and diadem will be given to him, for he will be the culmination of everything to which the Davidic house and the messianic kingship in Israel have always pointed. Closed quote. So Genesis 49.10 was used by Ezekiel to prophesy that a Messiah will come from the line of Judah, which has been allowed to lie in the dust. Thus, the word Shiloh means, in some way, Messiah. It refers to Jesus. And unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Thanks be to God. Verse 13 says, Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea, and he shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall be at Sidon. You'll notice that the rest of these oracles are short. The main oracles are the one given to Judah, which we have just discussed, and the one given to Joseph. Between the two, they receive 10 of the 24 lines of poetry. Verse 14, Issachar is a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, so he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backwards. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Now, a great deal of this is lost in translation. For example, in verse 19, four of the six Hebrew words of the verse are either Gad's name or word plays on Gad's name. You can't translate that into English and retain the beauty or the balance of the statements. We just get the gist. Verse 22 takes us into the next substantial oracle. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely, yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb, the blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents, up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers." Hebrew poetry is built on parallelisms and double entendre, and I love the double meaning of that last phrase. Joseph was indeed set apart from his brothers. They threw him down a well and sold him into Egypt. But here he is set apart for a special blessing. He is singled out 
for extended words of comfort and promise. Verse 27, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf in the morning devouring the prey and at evening dividing the spoil. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with a blessing suitable to him. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. To the last, Jacob has been thinking about the future. In this life, he was always a traveler, always a pilgrim, and always on the move. He was looking forward to the city whose architect and builder was the Lord. And here we see him finally going home. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have first-hand, on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.